right, boys and girls, episode 130. Holy shit, 130 episodes. We're almost at 200. Um, 130 is about to start with the amazing Chris Duffin. If you do not know who this guy is, you better look him up. He knows his shit when it comes to not only powerlifting, but human movement, to rehab, to performance for athletes. He knows his stuff. So check out kabukistrength.com to learn a thing or two. And in this episode, you are going to learn quite a bit from him answering a bunch of questions off of Facebook from one guy that had nine questions to you know abdominal pressure for bracing and just a lot of great stuff. So I don't want to spoil anymore. Here we go. Here's Chris. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I'm your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and joining me today is the legend, Chris Duffin. Say hello. Hey, how you doing? Good, good. So I always like to start the show to break the ice with the audience and ask my guests, what do you got planned for the weekend? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) This weekend, I... uh... Oh, geez, I've got work to do. So I've got uh, some uh, safety meeting stuff for our uh, a manufacturing company. Got to come in. I got uh, my son's soccer game on Saturday. Nice. And I squat uh, 800 pounds uh, for the final time in 30 days. I've been doing it every day. And then uh, Sunday morning, I fly out uh, at uh, 6.30 a.m. Uh, to head down to San Francisco. I'm going to be filming for a couple days with uh, Kelly Sturt on uh, on, uh, on a few different things and uh, actually visit some uh, some long-lost uh, friends from when I uh, grew up in the mountains up in Northern California. So I'm actually driving up there Sunday and then turning back around, uh, head back down to San Fran for uh, Monday. So that's, just, that's my weekend. <laughs> wow, that's jam-packed. That's awesome. Um, so for my audience and, like, maybe – the couple people who don't know who you are can you do a small little intro of like who you are what you do and how did you get into this industry in the first place sure um it's a that's an interesting (laughs) many of those are interesting stories so uh, i have been an athlete uh the majority of my life and been lifting weights for about 30 years and uh i was a competitive power lifter for um about 16 17 years or so I uh, was ranked number one in the world and won some one thing or another for like eight years. And uh, so I'm, I'm pretty well known for being a, uh, a great squatter and a deadlifter. Um, uh, I actually hold the Guinness World Record for the sumo deadlift. I'm the only person that's ever uh, deadlifted over a thousand pounds uh, in a sumo deadlift. Uh, any style deadlift, the lightest person in the world to, to ever do it. And um, the only person to ever do reps with it, because I did almost completed almost three reps with it. Um, I've held the world record in the squat before, uh, as the it was the heaviest uh, four times body weight squat um, of any weight class. Actually, at the time, I squatted 881 pounds at 220. Um, and so just a, a lot of history like that. Um, but, uh, I'm probably, I like to think of myself more as a, as a coach, uh, and an educator, uh, within the industry, which is, a uh, kind of the cornerstone of our, our company. We, we are a manufacturing company that produces uh, very unique products to help people live better through strength, but everything is really an output of our philosophy around movement principles. And it's those same principles that have allowed me to train and do things that other people 
have not done before. Just like being able to turn around and squat 800 pounds every single day for 30 <laughs> days. Uh, you know, that's not something people normally, it takes a lot of knowledge and skill around how to move properly, how to recover all these things to make that happen. And, um, so I, I work with a lot of, uh, uh, you know, big names in the field in developing um, the methodology that we have. So we're, we have a, a unique approach where um, we actually have a website uh, around like corrective exercises and stuff like that. Uh, it's a subscription-based website that's really useful. It's an incredible resource. We've dedicated so many hundreds of hours to building this out. Uh, but at the same time, we, we always push people to – you have to you have to have stress to adapt, and so we we end up we see a lot of people trying to fix issues by doing too many correctives and stretches and mobility, and not really realizing that you need to underload move well, and if you do that, you will adapt and adapt in a in a good way. So we actually use like the big basic movements as our as our assessments in the field so we don't do the mag seven or some of the other stuff and then we actually do most of our correction in that manner as well and then only move out to other stuff from there so so we've got an entire methodology around that um that we teach in a seminar series that uh interesting we teach uh we're we're hired to to come into um, professional organizations. So I think there's about six different MLB uh, major league baseball teams, uh, that contract with us to come in and teach their coaches, uh, this approach. It's not a power, like we, we, we base everything off the basic movements, but, um, it's, it's not a powerlifting seminar. It's a human movement piece. So I think that's kind of more where I'm known as around the, the, the coaching around movement, um, rehab, all those sorts of all those sorts of principles, and it's just a, a unique position in the industry uh, that I that I built into, and I think it it was rather purposeful. Um, so, you talked about how did I get into this? Um, actually, my background is um, I've got two engineering degrees and an MBA, and I ran manufacturing companies uh, for about two decades. Um, so for the last ten years at an executive level, doing like I'd come in and turn around a company. Uh, or a division, or take a company and take it from a regional presence to a national or global, and um, so um, so I've got a lot of that business experience. And on on the side, I actually owned uh, a gym uh, for got quite some time, over a decade. I've had I had a gym on the side where I've because I'm a competitive lifter. I've been lifting and learning this stuff, and I I decided I want to make a transition in the industry, and. I started prepping for that transition many years in advance of doing it. So I started creating content and then I started networking. And next thing you know, like, you know, if I've got questions, I can text message, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, Stu McGill or Kelly Starrett or Craig, Craig Liebenson, who's the guy that brought the DNS in the United States or, uh, you know, just like knowing the best of the best in each of these key disciplines is a, you know, I purposely developed that network. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm speaking with those people at seminars and doing that sort of stuff. And, and, um, you know, and the output of that was, uh, the antiquated tools that have been around for a long time that put us in poor positions. You know, they, 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 they compromise joint positions. They're not built to the differences between, you know, different leverages from one lifter to the next. And so, um, so that's where, where we really started running is when we started uh, introducing new products to the market that 
uh, help people with these things. And uh, so that's we launched Kabuki Strength uh, just about almost three years ago exactly. Uh, right now, yeah, this is when I walked away from my corporate corporate career was in the April of uh, 2015. So, so we've done a lot in three years. Wow. Okay. <laughs> that, that was a pretty rambling. That was a pretty rambling response, uh, you know. But uh, you, you had a few different questions in I there. I know. So, I know. But that was yeah. good. Um, so a couple things. I'm really curious about your Kabuki like movement system because you mentioned a lot of great people like Craig Levinson, Stu McGill. So I'm kind of curious, like, how did you come about creating it? Like, are some stew stuff kind of sprinkled in there? Like, how did you come about creating this system? Yeah, so that's it. That's exactly it. So um, it is actually starting to work with a lot of these top professionals and seeing that's what I that's how I performed well in my prior career. Um, I did a lot of improve. Like, that's I did turnaround work. I came in and I brought about organizational change, and. <clears throat> So I used a lot of different philosophies and found, like, what are the common themes of them? Of them? Like, try, not trying to reinvent the world, you know, the world or be the smartest person. Like, trying to figure out there's all these different, you know, approaches and, like, what are what are the pieces that fit together? And I'm, I, I feel that's something I'm, I'm pretty good at. Uh, so I started taking you know, all sorts of clinical-based seminars, um, you know, going to do strong first and, uh, you know, the kettlebell side of it, just like all these different pieces. And I spent several years doing this and then getting to know these other individuals where I can have, you know, I can attend their seminar, but I can ask them more open-ended questions, you know, afterwards. And what I found is there's, there's a, there was a ton of knowledge on the clinical side um, that's being used a little bit more in the rehab uh, rehab world or with elderly populations that was really, really pertinent around spinal integrity, positioning, how that affects joints upstream and downstream. But at the same time, it wouldn't work and it wasn't applicable. People were trying to apply it in the sports world, but it wasn't, you know, it just, it, it was fluff. It, you know, it, honestly, it was, it, it, in my opinion, uh, crap. <laughs> uh, and what I mean by that is, with those populations that they were working with in the clinical world, it was a, a applying a stress. And that's why I talked about the, the intro. But if you take any sort of athlete and you try to do that sort of stuff, you're actually detraining them. They're, you know, the, the amount of growth hormone release and things that are happening on the cellular level are actually going to downregulate. And you're actually going to reduce um, the training effect, the recovery, and all these sorts of things. So these sorts of concepts had to be looked at and adapted in different ways. And so um, that's and that's how we ended up. It was over a several-year period of time. Um, you know, I started with, you know, some of the basic, um, you know, doing some FMS-type work and some of the um, – you know, some of the assessments and stuff that are out there that are a little bit, you know, used in that functional fitness world. And you know what? It, it just, at the end of the day, it didn't tell me what I needed to know. And um, and I found, like, I'm like, I can see all this stuff. I can see all the things that they're, you know, spending hours to try to do all these different assessment protocols and looking at the, you know, joint, you know, uh, you know the shoulder mobility and what's going on with the hips. I'm like, I can see all that. I can see it in the squat. I can see it in a deadlift. I can see these things happening. I can tell you right now that that oblique's not firing, and we've got you know uh, you know an issue in the shoulder, like all this stuff going. And uh, I'm like, well, let's make this our assessment. I think that we just need to take the skill 
of being able to actually see this stuff, to have that fine detail, that eye to be able to understand what's going on, that, hey, you know, what's happening, the output that I see on that bar is actually from you know, a breakdown happening in the foot and control of that right foot on the person and being able to teach people that. And then in the moment, like instead of going, hey, okay, we've identified an issue. So this is one of the big things like, oh, we go through this assessment protocol and you go, okay, well, in a month from now, we're going to be able to start lifting weights after we get you moving perfectly and you score, you know, such and such on this. this. That's not what your client's looking for. That's why they're going to, you know, walk out the gym and go down to the place down the street that's going to go, oh, no, that's good. Let's get you. We're going to do these Metcons. We'll have you in shape in no time because clients to be either getting stronger, looking better, losing weight, and they want to do that right now. And honestly, if you've got the skill and the coaching skill, a lot of times, like the issue with the foot, I don't need to do a bunch of drills. The first step to do is try to improve because all this is an output of, you know, control, uh, neural control. And, and you can, with the appropriate cueing strategies, a lot of times fix it in the moment, right then. I don't need to have them on the floor doing some rolling drills. I just need to cue it appropriately. And here's a bunch of different strategies because there's not one like way to cue things. Um, that's a whole discussion if we get into cueing, but there's no magic single cue, but we know what we've got to know what we need to fix. We got to know strategies on how to fix that in the movement wherever possible. And then if that doesn't work, now we can go to taking and using correctives in a way that is useful, which is to bring about proprioceptive awareness, uh, you know, on, you know, where, where my body's at, where my joints at, how am I moving? Like it's, it's for an athlete. That's all it, that's all it's really, that's all it's really doing is perhaps helping with, um, warming up with firing, uh, with bringing proprioceptive awareness, these sorts of things. So you can use them as appropriately. That's why we've got a website for it. Um, but wherever possible, we don't want to go there. Um, it's just like the whole thing around uh, mobility. Okay. Like if, if we've got tight hips, you know, it's not because we're strength training. Squatting does not make you tight and muscle bound. Squatting incorrectly does. Okay. Because the body is trying to protect that joint. So you're not doing something appropriate around that joint. And so it's not this, like people get in this thing of like, oh, if you strengthen, you've got to do this and this to help balance this out. No, if you, if you just <laughs> move well to begin with under load, the, the tightening and loss of mobility is a signal that something is going wrong in your training to begin with and you need to go back. So these are all signals and to help you try to identify and fix it in the movement. We can't always do that. So we have, you know, other regressions that we go to um, and we have tools to help with. So sometimes it's like you have to do what's called, you know, I call it triage work when you've actually got to go do some soft tissue or mobility work. Like, guess what? I'm not going to have you pressing overhead if you can't get the joint in a good position to do it. We've got to have good core stabilization. We have to have good joint centration. So guess what? We're going to go in there and we're going to, you know, we're going to release the, the, the lats or the trap or whatever's causing the restriction. Okay. And now you're going to go overhead press. Okay. But now we still have to go fix the root issue. So, um, so it's, uh, you know, it's just, it's seeing those gaps and those things uh, in the industry that, uh, that helped, you know, gel all that stuff. So yes, there's definitely Stu's work in there. Um, uh, 
Craig introduced me to uh, DNS and DNS really as it relates to sport. And I got a lot of kickback from DNS when I first started because they were very anti-lifting. Um, but now I've developed a really good relationship uh, with them. And I think I've had a pretty big impact uh, on a number of the of the uh, the instructors from Prague uh, because they've seen now what we're doing and the outputs that we're having from it um, that uh, that we're changing that culture as well because that was a definitely much more of a clinical kind of based uh, uh, curriculum and us going in is like here we're strength guys um, it was a uh, you know they've they've actually in their presentations have like anti you know. <laughs> anti-strength training, like barbell type uh, stuff. And I'm like, oh, hey, that's me over here. And guess what? We can show you. that. <laughs> um, but uh, DNS is probably the biggest influencer on um, the approach that we have, which is interesting because we're taking somebody, you know, uh, a, you know, something that was inherently like almost anti-strength training um, and using that as our, like our biggest influence on developing the methodology, but there's a mixture of everything. I mean, we, we still, there's stuff from, uh, uh, Russian ballet, uh, kettlebells, um, like it's it, wherever it's, you've got to find those pieces of all that, those different, you know, those, that web of interconnectedness and figure out what works and what doesn't and pull all that together. And, uh, so, and the output of that has been, has been our movement systems, which uh, is, a it's a really powerful thing. I mean, it's, our seminar attendees, like it's a three-day course, and it's going to be expanding into a couple different levels because we still can't cover everything in the scope of that. And uh, but it's you hit the day, you hit the ground running day one, and the impact. And this is you know our attendees, you know they're not typically not athletes. They're either um, trainers, uh, clinicians. So we teach a lot of uh, so a lot of our work is used in uh, physical therapy. Uh, and uh, chiropractic as well. Actually, our website, uh, the movement systems, uh, our movement library is actually used by, I think, two different uh, physical therapy colleges in, in their curriculums. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's legit stuff. Um, but yeah, usually about a third of our audience it, uh, is usually clinical-based, and then the most, uh, all the rest are either um, uh, professional collegiate uh, strength coaches, small minority there because we do a lot of those uh, as private seminars, um, but there's usually maybe 5% of those, and then the rest are all uh, coaches, uh, just coaches or, or trainers um, making up the majority of it. But everybody's basically professionals in the, in the field for the most part, um, although we do have some lifters, uh, just straight lifters showing up for their own personal, um, but usually, uh, usually people you know, investing in furthering their education. No, I really like that. And like, you know, as I got through this industry, like I first started with just the FMS and I'm like, okay, this is a good starting point. And then I'm like, oh, there's Stuart McGill. He has some good stuff too. Hey, there's this thing called the FRC. That's good stuff too. And then, oh, there's this guy named Charlie Weingaroff. He's talking about all this stuff. And I think as coaches like progress, it's almost good to almost like take a little bit of this, a little bit of that and almost create your own system. And like I was looking on your website, I'm like, your KMS level one, I'm like, fuck, this looks amazing. Like, people need to take this and it needs to be, like, out there more into the world just to make our industry better. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I've have uh, – so I have <laughs> – 
clinicians that work for uh, Liebensen that have been to my seminar. Uh, some of Kelly Starrett's co- coaches have been to my seminar. Like I've taught with Stu McGill. I've been with uh, uh, Wein- Weingroff's brilliant. Um, you know, we've uh, we've lectured together uh, on one occasion. I've been to his uh, some of his seminars as well. And yeah, you've you've just got to pull from all that, but you've got to figure out the the pieces. How do all those pieces fit together? And that's where I think some people miss. They they learn a lot of the the cool tricks, the tricks of the trade, the little magic tricks of this and that, but don't really think about and understand um, that it is an entire process. How do I take somebody in? When do I pull back? When do I move forward? When do I, you know, take somebody and go, okay, I need you to see a professional for this sort of stuff. I need, like, how does all this stuff fit together? When do I, when do I do my soft tissue work? When and how do I apply this stuff? Like, uh, you know, that's, that's the, that's the intricacies of it. And that's like, when we go into the, the professional organizations, it's really valuable because it's, you know, we're teaching with the strength coaches, but it's the integration and they have everything in house, right? So it's that whole integration of when do I do this? When do I have the athlete working on something on his own or with the strength coach? When do I have them seeing, you know, the athletic trainer and how do we incorporate that? And like that whole like process of how does everything inter, you know, intercept and your job in the world is only one piece of it. Oftentimes, um, you know, nobody has, (laughs) not many people have the ability to, to do all those things or the, you know, the certifications to be able to do all those things. Right. So. Awesome. Um, so one question I wanted to bring up, um, one of my colleagues, she's a chiropractor and she went to school in California, I believe, and she was introduced to you and she remembers one of her mentors was saying that, um, the moment you got injured at one point in your career and then you figured out something to do with like proper intra-abdominal pressure and how to like, I think you've referred it to as like your belt or safety belt. And I'm kind of curious of, you know, how did that help you recover from an injury and how can people coach that intra-abdominal pressure without bracing so hard like you're trying to take a punch? If that all made sense. Yeah. <laughs> it does. So, uh, so yeah, a little history. So, um, so that's why I said DNS has the biggest influence on us because um, the fir- very first piece we approach is a quality of intra-abdominal pressurization. And we pull a lot from DNS. They're really good in, in this area. Um, and uh, so I was introduced to this a number of years ago by my friend, Dr. Uh, Philip Snell, uh, who's got a great website, by the way, for Fix Your Own Back, MyRehabExercise.com as well. Um, so, um, but... Um, uh, I I had a series of injuries. So it was left adductor, right oblique, this shoulder, so on, just all this stuff. And, uh, you know, I kept going to practitioner after practitioner, and everybody kept focusing on the area. And I had I'd been training for decades with no injuries or no major injuries. And it was just like over a, like a two or three year span, I just had injuries kind of moving throughout the body. I'm like, there has to be a reason for this. And trying to attack this one injury at the time is not the fix. And uh, so I, at that point, I started researching different providers and bouncing around trying to find somebody. And uh, that's when I met uh, Dr. Philip Snell, who happens to be uh, good, happens to be friends with Dr. Charlie Weingroff, and um, and uh, out of New York. So we've mentioned his name a couple times. And um, this doctor, um, uh, Snell, he says, "Hey, I think this may be something, but 
that, but I, I just don't want to tell you yes or no, or that it's right or wrong because you're a high level athlete and I don't want to screw up what you're doing. I don't understand your sport entirely. So I want to introduce you to it. And, uh, and he knew Charlie, uh, Weingroff, who's also has a powerlifting background. He called up Charlie and said, Hey, this is what I want to do with this guy, Chris Duffin. What are your thoughts? And Charlie's like, yep, I would move forward with that. And so, uh, that's how I ended up kind of getting, you know, introduced to the DNS side of things. And, um, so, so that really is like, that really is the, the, the key piece of where you've got to start from. Number one actually is, is breathing. If you've got breathing dysfunction, you're going to have issues populating throughout the body here and there. And a lot of us do because of the world we live in today. Um, and it sounds simple. We all breathe, um, but proper diaphragmatic breathing, um, is, uh, is something that kind of breaks down, um, for a number of reasons. I don't, think I need to dive into it too much in this. But um, um, if we've got dysfunction there, we need to correct it because that's one function of the, of, the, of the diaphragm. The other function is stabilization, and the third function is the sphincter. So if you have dysfunction with one of those, it's going to lay over. If you're not using it correctly for breathing, you're not going to be using it correctly for bracing. And, um, and a lot of people think that they brace correctly in lifting, and uh, they don't. <laughs> so just that whole like, hey, I've got to, I've got to be able to take a punch. Well, the, the taking a punch is a concentric, what we call a concentric c- contraction uh, of the that outer sheath uh, that sur- that supports that entire you know core area, um, but that midsection of your torso. But bracing is. Is, is a little of both. It, well, it's not a little of both, but it, it's best to actually start with an eccentrically loaded contraction. So when I say by, what I mean by eccentrically loaded is actually using that, that diaphragm to press down on all the organs and push out 360 degrees around. Not belly breathing, not a big belly push. That's another area people make a mistake is big air in the belly. Well, guess what? folks, air goes in your lungs. It doesn't go in your belly. So, um, so there's, <laughs> there's a big problem there. It's actually the diaphragm that's, that's creating the pressure, not the air. Okay. There's a little bit of air on top of it. Once you've got that eccentric load that can increase it a little bit more, but you do not need a big ginormous breath of air. You need air so you don't pass out and die. Okay. That's the respiration piece. So bracing you can do without breathing. And I encourage people when they start to start without breathing first, because you'll become, you'll overlie it and you'll have a breakdown in, in, in strategy if you don't do it, um, correctly. So we can learn to do it independently. Then you can start adding respiration on top of it. Okay. Um, so, and they're both consuming, uh, uh, resources for the diaphragm. So we'll talk about integration of those a little bit more here in a, in a minute. But we want to drive that diaphragm down. And it's, again, really important that we have posture first. So we have to have um, the bottom of the rib cage, you know, the rib cage area working, which is basically, I'm, I'm saying the diaphragm, uh, in direct opposition of the pelvic floor. So if you've got anterior or posterior tilt, um, it's not, you won't be able to get an, an effective brace. So we've got to bring those two in alignment first. It doesn't have to be necessarily perfect. There's a range of neutral, okay? 
Um, but we need to bring those into alignment. A lot of times I talk about pinning the sternum. Some people confuse that thinking that it means a crunch. There's absolutely no crunch whatsoever, no forward movement or crunching movement of the upper torso. If you're doing that, you're not doing it correctly. But if you draw, imagine taking that sternum and drawing it to your back, to your back of your spine, and imagine driving that diaphragm or like a string tied off of that being pulled down at the same time that you do that. Um, that should help um, with that pinning the, the sternum. We also teach it in a dead bug position uh, with a strap under the opposite of the back. It's actually, I think, T11, T12, uh, where it's at, but basically opposite the sternum under that. In the dead bug position, somebody's trying to pull the strap away. We'll teach you to kind of pin that and what that posture looks like. Again, pin it without a crunch. Okay, so now we've got that. And so now we're driving that down. Again, it's not all forward. It's not in the air. We should see inflation through the obliques in the paraspinals in the back. So just below the lower rib, if you get your, your thumb back there, uh, you should be, feel some expansion. You won't feel as much as, it, as you do in your, in, in your obliques. And then you're going to go low in your abdominum uh, towards, the, towards the front. Um, and uh, I actually, if you hold your hand up and open up, um, your your pointer finger and your thumb and open them wide. If you put your thumb into your oblique and then that pointer finger, it'll slide down below your belt line, okay? And that's your low abdominum. It's going to be, you know, two or three inches off the midset, midline uh, below that belt line right there. We want to inflate hard in the, that area and fill those up, okay? All right. That is the eccentric loading, I really don't, and, and when you do that, you're going to have a co-contraction of the pelvic floor, so you don't need to worry about uh, any cueing with that. A lot of people, um, there's some different cueing strategies that float around there. People uh, uh, think about, don't worry about it. It's going to happen if you eccentrically load the dia diaphragm, eccentrically um, sorry, if you use the diaphragm to eccentrically load and create pressure in the uh, intra-abdominal pressure, the co-contraction is going to happen. Now, additionally, if you've got weight in your hands or on your back, here's the thing, the concentric action is going to happen as well. So you don't need to think about that inward you know, contraction because there is no inward contraction pushing out against all the, the transverse abdominus, everything else that's going to create that 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 outer balloon. So um, basically we're taking, thinking about it like a, a giant hot water balloon. As you're filling that with air, all those abdominal muscles and all that are the, the outer sheath. I think I used that word earlier. That you're going to be creating tension against those. Okay, So you don't need to worry about the taking a, taking a punch. Actually, some of my older YouTube videos did show that as a cue uh, for some stuff, and I've gone away from that just because I see a breakdown when we do it. So this is the process that, uh, that, that we teach now. Obviously, this works a little better in person uh, when we can actually show and do it on you. <clears throat> and uh, we work on it. Uh, usually, we start people um, in a 90-90 uh, uh, position on the floor. So the the easiest place to learn this is if we take all those other stressors out. So if you kick your feet up on a bench, uh, knees at 90, hips at 90, you can practice from that position. Then you can start pulling the bench away to create some extra, okay? And then we can start uh, flipping over and doing it in a quadruped stance. So this is basically McGill's um, uh, McGill's uh, uh, 
a bird dog. But actually, if we go back to the back position, if you are now remove that bench, you're basically in a position to do the dead bug. And so that's where the dead bug is, is actually now we've got core stabilization lock good and hard. Now we need to actually learn how to do movement with about the shoulder and the hip while holding it because that's what's going to happen next. As soon as we start moving in either of those joints, we're going to lose that posture and position and the brace uh, is going to disappear. That quality of that IAP is going to go away. So now we flip to the quadruped position. So for McGill's bird dog, it's the same thing. And we see people do this wrong all the time with the bird dog where they're just going through the motions. No, the bird dog is a way to practice holding quality IAP position and posture all together and now adding movement about the hip and about the shoulder. That's what the bird dog is. Now all of a sudden a bird dog becomes incredibly hard. Okay. Now we can move to a standing position, which is going to be the hardest. So these are the these are the progressions. Okay. Now we're going to be able to hold it for a squat or a deadlift, right? Um, so so that's uh, we have to start there. The next place we go is the foot. After this, it's the next most important place. But uh, that uh, I think I, that cover your. Your, your, your question there? Yeah, definitely. Uh, just one more before we get into, like, Facebook questions. But um, how much do you talk about pelvic floor? Because out here where I am, there's a physiotherapist named Diane Lee, and I got to go to her clinic, and um, they actually hooked me up to an ultrasound, and they asked me, like, turn on your core, and you can actually see if your TA turns on internal oblique and then external oblique. And I was happy I passed their test, but most people brace from the outside in. So I'm kind of curious, do you like talk at all about pelvic floor at all? Um, no, because again, if we if we load, if we have the proper strategy with creating a good eccentric load, and I guarantee nearly everybody that thinks that they brace well, they're doing it wrong. They're actually doing that that, that starting from the outside in. So we teach it in in a manner that people get it. And uh, once you do that, that co-contraction of the pelvic floor happens. And so we see this. So um, a good resource for this, like in the, the, the women's world, uh, that deal with a lot of pelvic floor stuff, like post-pregnancy uh, and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, they're called birth fit. So um, really highly recommend them. They're uh, uh, a, got a clinical base uh uh, really heavy DNS influence as well. We've had them on our podcast before. Um, and uh, some of them are actually, uh, you know, certified or can reference you to people that uh, deal with pelvic floor disorders. Um, but a lot of times with like uh, women, if you've got an issue with the pelvic floor, they're going to be peeing frequently during lifting. If that happens occasionally, it's fine, right? But if every time you laugh or sneeze or yeah. lift a heavy weight, you're you're losing it, we've got an issue. And so what we see is when people go to our clinic without dealing with any pelvic floor specific discussions, just working on the quality of the IAP uh, through that eccentric load, those issues disappear. And so so we know that that stuff is happening correctly. Um, but that's that's the process, and that's how. And this is really. Again, heavily DNS-influenced uh, discussion that we're having there, which, again, is all about IAP, public floor, everything uh, uh, there. Um, again, a little bit more clinical-based, but uh, um, that's where the background of this comes from. Okay. Uh, so moving on to Facebook questions from the guy who has nine questions, but he has a preferred list of questions that he would like to hear. Uh, so number one is, what is his preferred training frequency for the main movement patterns for himself? And more generally, of course, individualism and goals determines this a lot, but as general rules. Okay. 
so there is no general rules. <laughs> uh, but uh, if we can do more work in a shorter period of time, uh, you're going to see uh, more results. You're going to be able to accumulate more fatigue. And then when you, when you deload and want to see a performance from that, you're going to see a higher spike, right? So, um, so the, the goal is to be able to increase frequency, Okay, so when I did my 1,000-pound deadlift cycle, the most I'd ever normally I deadlifted heavy a couple times a month and deadlifted only once a, once a week. To accomplish it working backwards, we knew what my deadlift frequency was going to have to be, which was pulling heavy at least twice a week, um, which was far more frequent than what I normally had done. So we worked on that in phases. Okay, so we started you know, adding in deadlift-like movements. Then we started adding in um, uh, partial deadlifts and then slowly working till where I was deadlifting uh, once, uh, twice a week, one of those being a deficit, one being off the floor. And um, uh, to get up to that level of frequency as we, as we did that. Um, so there, there, there is no fixed answer on that. Typically, uh, my frequency is a lot less than what we would have um, uh, a lot of lifters do just because as you move up in weights, um, it doesn't matter that it's a percentage of your one rep max. There's still a higher load on the body as a whole through the joints, the ligaments, everything else. So just because, uh, you know, I have, you know, you're lifting 95% and I'm lifting 95%, 95% of 500 pounds versus 95% of 1,000 pounds are two entirely different things, okay? So, again, everything is really subjective. That said, um, even our high-level lifters are lifting. We have them working up to pretty high level of frequencies. Um, so we've got uh, uh, Chris Bridgeford, uh, who's pulling – Actually, last night he pulled 900 pounds for a couple singles. Um, not even as heavy a session yet before going into the U.S. Open. Uh, he's in good contention to to win his class and maybe uh, have a shot at the money. Um, but uh, you know we're squatting and deadlifting heavy, you know, a few times a week at this point. Um, Joe Sullivan, um, again, uh, he's going to the U.S. Open. Uh, he's got a really good shot. Uh, he's got a little bit of a, a C-spine nerve issue right now that's inhibiting his uh, uh, inhibiting his his bench press. But you know he's squatting over 800 pounds. You know a couple times a week uh, in the 198 class. Uh, uh, Eva Dunbar, who has the highest Wilkes. These are all uh, athletes we coach, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Eva Dunbar has the highest Wilkes uh, of any powerlifter. Uh, any weight class, male or female, in the history of the sport. Um, uh, so she just recently did that a few months ago. Uh, again, we've got her training at a pretty high level of frequency. We have our athletes lifting at typically a higher frequency at those heavier weights than a lot of other people are doing. Um, but a lot of it's dependent on, yeah, what are your goals? Because doing this stuff is very, like what Joe and Chris and Eva are doing is a job. Like it is not... This is not a hobby. It's not enjoyable in that part of the process. <laughs> okay. Um, this is all about performance. It's not necessarily, you've got to factor in, you know, the, the, the mental health, the longevity, the things that, you know, like that are going to roll in there. Um, I do long periods of like not doing heavy lifting as well and just doing fun 
stuff. That's how I stay lifting for 30 years. You know, like it's not all about performance. Like you've got to do, uh, uh, things that, you know, it's there for the soul, you know? And, uh, um, so, uh, that said on frequency, I've talked a couple times about now about me squatting every single day. I've never squatted more than once a week heavy and I've just squatted 800 pounds every single day for a month. Uh, now what that f- level of frequency has done to me, I'm, I'm pretty useless right now. Like I'm sleeping 12 to 16 hours a day. I'm doing nothing but squatting. I'll come into the office and get uh, updates on, on, on some core priority projects this last couple of weeks for, for an hour or two. I'm doing my rehab work and I'm eating and I'm sleeping. Like there's, I got nothing left. Like, especially these last few days, like there's just, this is not sustainable. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so there's, there, there's a balance of a lot of things, you know, what is, you know, where are you at as far as your life cycle of an athlete? You can't just take a program that's on the internet that such and such Russian champion did. Well, they trained for 20 years to develop to a level, to be able to do what was in that program. Okay. Um, and that wasn't what they repeated every training cycle over and over again. So when, what, you know, what level have you worked up to, uh, work capacity that you can sustain? Uh, what is your work and life balance? What is the sustainability that you need to have like mentally for your lift? Like there's all these other things. So it is very much an individual process and every training program that we have, that we work with every single client we have, we have not a, not a single template is individualized based on those goals. Our process for arriving at it is not. We have a we have a process, but um, every, there there is no like fixed thing. There's so many very individual variables um, that play a role into that. That yeah, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> okay. Uh, so his next question is attitude towards loaded carries for non-strong men. Hmm. Um, so, um, I think, uh, farmers are actually really great. Um, and a lot of people would do well with putting uh, farmer's walk into their training, um, because it's starting to getting the loading out of that pure sagittal plane. Um, so we've got to have that left, right balance and all, uh, you know, we've actually, uh, we've got, uh, you know, uh, we're, we've actually got some pace and moving with the legs. We've got like, that's a really good piece, um, overall for a health. Um, uh, and I would call it, uh, that would fall into what I call my anti-fragility training. <laughs> um, so I do things like, uh, loaded marching, um, the shoulder rock swing falls into that same category. These are the things that if you put into your training are going to help you be more robust for things that come out of the blue and hit you sideways that you're not used to. Um, because that's one of the problems with barbell sports is we're working so much in the same plane all the time. If we get hit with a long step on a walkout, a bar slightly misloaded bending, you know, all these sorts of things all of a sudden, or you're just, out in life in the wrong twist or turn you've got a lot of power but you may have uh some inherent weaknesses and so farmers walk shoulder rock swings loaded marches stuff like that are really great to put in your program awesome uh so next one if he would put a focus on the overhead press how he would go about it training wise um 
This is a really uh, specific, but uh, uh, you know, you would program you'd program that just like any other lift. Um, so overhead pressing is a great movement, and um, um, just my uh, biggest thing there is making sure that you can actually move in that range correctly. I'd be more concerned with that because we see a lot of people that compromise and shift into uh, gaining mobility through their spine uh, if they're lacking it in the shoulder. Um, so if we don't have that, we may start with some regressions from that with some kettlebell work. Um, I love doing kettlebell overhead stuff, uh, like bottoms up while walking, mm-hmm. uh, because it's going to force you. You can't get in some of those bad patterns. Um, and really making sure that we've got uh, some good movement there. Other than that, I mean, you'd program it just much like you would uh, program the bench press. Um, so there's, yeah, I mean, you would work on, <laughs> you know, managing intensity and volume in those variables and uh, cycling those. Um, so uh, no different than programming for, for any other lift. Perfect. Uh, so this next one's from Matthew, and he asks, what do you eat in a typical day, and what do you promote slash retain flexibility? Well, what do you do to promote re- or retain flexibility? Sorry. Um, so big plug right now there for uh, our movement website. So www.kabuki.ms for movement systems. That's K-A-B-U-K-I dot M-S. So Number one, and I said that, is move well to begin with. If you do that, you're really going to have to do a very minimal level of mobility work. Um, I like doing some good movement prep um, that is, can typically be an assessment at the same time. Uh, so it's going to vary a little bit based on, um, you know, what activity I'm preparing for. So, like, when I was doing the sumo deadlift, um, my go-to was a shin box get-up. So right then I could feel, you know, I'm checking internal rotation, external rotation. I'm cueing the adductors and the glutes to fire. I've got rotation in the in, in, in the hips as well. Um, so I'm checking all those things. If I've got a deficit, then I'm going to go do something, then go back and retap. Boom. It's that simple. Um, you know, so it's, it's, you know, picking some of those movements, and we've got some really great process for that on uh, kabuki.ms. And... Um, Right now, for my squatting every day, the biggest thing for me uh, is actually I'm trying to get as much of a of a uh, ability to fire up that core, that quality IAP um, before training, so I don't have to do as many warm ups just because the fatigue accumulation of even my warm ups over the month. Um, so I start out with doing some shoulder rock swings. I do some shoulder rock anti-rotation drills, um, and then I do some wall uh, wall work. Um, this is all actually on a recent uh, YouTube release, by the way, um, where I walk through this, uh, practicing uh, quality of uh, bracing, do some goblet squats, and then we'll start working through, uh, through my movement prep. In there, I'd be able to feel any issues that I need to address. Uh, and work through that. So it's it's going to vary about based on you know the training program that I've got, like what inhibition inhibitions are going on. I'm trying to f- fix the right, pick the right movements. You notice um, one thing: I'm doing very little mobility work before training. So um, this is a big piece for me: is you're doing work to get you moving and firing before training, and then 
you know, if you want to work on, you know, you've got some mobilization or soft tissue work type stuff, we would do that post-training unless it's something that, like I said, you can't get in a position. So, our, you know, the prior question being, I want to, I want to lift overhead. And well, if I can't get the shoulder in a good position to do that, I have to clean that up before training, right? Um, same thing with squatting. You know, a lot of times the mobility work would actually be upper body so that I can get the spine in good position. Um, but I'm not doing, you know, soft tissue work on the lower extremities, on the prime movers before training. I try to minimize that wherever possible. Some exceptions might be like pressing. So a lot of people are lacking internal rotation. Um, so they've got that shoulder moving forward at the bottom of the press. The cleanup for that is actually going into the pec. So if you've got to, you know, we don't want to compromise the shoulder position, so we may be doing some some soft tissue work to open that up. If I do do that, then you, we, may, we might want to take it a little bit easier, not push the limits during that training session until we've got a few more training sessions under our belt with the shoulder working correctly, going through the full range of motion, and now we don't need to do that that cleanup before training. Um, so those are those are the approaches. Um, I think I've missed the first part of the question there. Uh, I uh, believe it was, what do you eat in a typical day? Oh. Uh, <laughs> um, these days, I don't worry um, too much. Uh, you know, I'm not managing macros or anything like that. Um, I'm definitely, I'm definitely heavier, and I'm, I'm fine with being, uh, fine with being there. I'm usually walking around about 270 uh, at 510. So you know, there's a, there's a little bit of stomach there, but uh, at the same time, you can still see abs and veins on, you know, under there. Um, but uh, by most standards, I'd probably be considered a, a little on the fat side. So. Um, so uh, my biggest thing there is I think there's a couple gaps. A lot of people um, try to eat easily digestible foods. So a lot of people sometimes jump to things that they feel are healthy. Um, like, uh, I've got to have a lot of broccoli and I've got to have my, you know, super super brown rice and this and that. Like sometimes those can actually, if you're try especially trying to eat a lot, frequently and a lot, um, they slow the digestive system. Um, so even things like uh, peanut butter, bananas, things like that, they'll slow down the GI tract. Um, and uh, so so eating, um, you know, cleaner, um, more digestible foods like the FODMAP is a really good place to, to look at that. Um, so digestion is like the, the key thing that I try to focus on. If you've got either constipation or diarrhea going on at any level, we want to take a look at that. Um, so you want to look at those food choices. Again, the FODMAP is a really get, great place to go for that and start looking at that. Uh, the other thing is um, Stan Efforting preaches this all the time. There's actually some books coming out now around uh, salt. So um, any concern over salt and high blood pressure is completely wrong. Um, so the science behind that is completely flawed. Um, back in the 70s, I think there was like six doctors that said, noticed like, hey, I've got some patients with uh, blood sugar. Or high blood pressure. Oh, yeah, they got some high salt intake. They essentially use what would equate a pound of salt a day for a human, okay, in the test. So, yeah, they had problems. You know what? 
you'd have all sorts of problems if you ate a pound of salt a day, okay? So, uh, uh, salt is very essential. Um, people love to turn to creatine for performance enhancers. Salt is actually performs it's a better performance enhancer than creatine. Um, so there's a lot of people, um, you know, six eight grams of uh, of of uh, uh, salt a day uh, is a great place to go. So just salt your meals, okay? Um, salt your meals. Salt is for an athlete is absolutely uh, a great thing. Um, uh, trying to mix in fermented products for digestion is great. Um, so um, I'm a, I, I love going to unpasteurized, needs to be unpasteurized uh, sauerkraut. So any of the pasteurized stuff, so you don't want to go to your Whole Foods or the organic section of your store to find this. Um, the pasteurized stuff is going to have all the, the good bacteria and stuff killed in there. Um, but, uh, you know, having a half a cup or a cup a day of sauerkraut is absolutely great. Um, I think a much better approach than just taking uh, a, a probiotic. If you do take probiotics, switch them out. So everybody's got a little bit different. So change out the brands. Look for the number of different types of flora, not just the total amount of flora uh, in those. Um, so those are going to be my, you know, the, those are the things that I try to pay attention to. Um, at the same time, I live in Portland, Oregon, that has amazing, like, cultural food of all types, all everywhere it, and uh, I, I i love a good fancy a good meal like uh so uh uh but you know through the day through the week try to have good digesting foods manage your salt intake okay and then try to have fermented products and things that are going to have natural probiotics in them um you know the kombuchas the the um although kombucha can have a problem with people that have uh intolerance to uh uh, uh, wheat or ye uh, wheat. So for some people, it might cause some diarrhea. Um, but uh, the sauerkraut's, uh, the unpasteurized sauerkraut's way to go. Awesome. So we're already coming up to an hour, and I feel like you can, like, talk for a day straight. But um, maybe for the last question, where can people find you online? What projects do you have coming out? And anything else you want to plug, you can do that right now. Okay. Well, definitely, if you're not familiar with our products, you need to check them out. Um, um, so we've got some content coming out. Actually, Stu McGill's filming a piece uh, shortly on our transformer bar. Uh, it's being used extensively throughout the Major League Baseball clubs right now. But it's the only barbell in the world where we can actually change spinal mechanics and improve them and fine-tune the loading mechanics for the individual lifter. So we can take anybody of any leverages or any problems with squatting and with no coaching actually fix those problems by changing the load. What we're talking about doing here is essentially taking something like a, a goblet squat that you would normally use as a corrective pattern, but you can't load too much because the front delts are going to fail or whatever. And we can actually put the load in that position or any other position that we want and actually load that. So, so we've got a lot of great products like that. The Duffalo bar that removes the stress on the shoulders during squatting and pressing variations. Our shoulder rock, which is the ultimate shoulder strengthening and uh, rehabilitation tool. Um, all this stuff is on kabukistrength.com. That's K-A-B-U-K-I strength.com. Uh, we also uh, we do uh, coaching, we do movement assessments, um, and uh, we've got a sub the subscription-based website, uh, www.kabuki.ms. You can also find it on kabukistrength.com. But um, uh, absolutely phenomenal 
uh, product for only $10 a month, which is a fraction of like what other people, these are, this is a high quality site with tons of, tons of uh, information on there. Um, Right now, um, a lot of the projects, I've got some lot of slow burn projects right now. We've got, uh, we've got a new scraping tool coming out uh, that will actually mount to the, to the shoulder rock. It's much like a, um, a, a Graston type tool. Um, basically, the same, it is the same thing. Uh, this can be used handheld or it can be used on the end of it so you can actually do all the work on yourself, hit your lower extremities, your back, any of those sorts of things. But we've got a lot of educational products content we need to uh, create around that. Uh, but that should be hitting the market in the next couple months. But later this year and early next year, you're going to start seeing some bigger pieces of equipment and things start hitting the market that are going to help um, essentially the, you know, the individual trainer or studio gym owner um, kind of rethink what a gym is and actually be able to uh, reduce your overhead costs and allow you to train more people at at once while optimizing joint positions and integrity for the individual lifter. Um, so there's, uh, we're going to be uh, helping rethink what a, what a gym looks like by uh, creating new equipment the market hasn't seen before. So, Awesome. That sounds amazing. And thank you so much for all your time. Like you just, you blew my mind. It was awesome. <laughs> Excellent. Good, good. All right, so that's going to wrap up episode 130. Hopefully you enjoyed it as much as I did. And again, I'm going to remind you, please, 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 please share this podcast with your friends and family on every single social media channel out there, as well as signing up to the official Cut the Shape, Get Fit newsletter that is going to be in the show notes of this episode. Hopefully you got something out of this episode as much as I did. And until next week, you guys, I'm going to continue bringing the best fitness and health information out there onto one podcast, which is this one. That's it for me. Until next time, you guys.